All right, it's my pleasure to continue our study of the life of Christ tonight. We've uh, spent a few weeks so far, and, and we're just now really getting to the, the start of his ministry. So tonight we're going to spend our time looking at the very first event in what we would call the ministry of Jesus' life, and that is his baptism. And tonight I'm excited because we finally get to that point where we're going to be bouncing between the synoptic, or not the synoptic, between the four Gospels. Thus far, our studies have, have been such that we could pretty much stay in one Gospel most of the time because uh, the, the stories uh, from Jesus' birth through his childhood were, were very uh, limited in how many texts we had to, to use. But tonight we go to his baptism, and as you can see on the screen, there are... Th- his baptism is recorded in all three synoptic gospels. Um, and we're going to read all of those up front, and then we'll spend our time studying this event. So I want to start, if you will, with, in the book of Matthew. Uh, let's go there and read the text of Jesus' baptism according to Matthew. That's Matthew chapter 3. We'll be focused on verses 13 through 17. Matthew chapter 3, verses 13 through 17. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son. With whom I am well pleased. Now, if you'll jump over to Mark's gospel, we'll read his account of these same events. They appear in Mark chapter 1, verses 9, 10, and 11. Mark chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove and a voice came from heaven you are my beloved son with you i am well pleased and finally if you'll jump over to luke's gospel the third chapter he records the baptism of jesus in verses 21 and 22 luke chapter 3 verses 21 and 22 now when all the people were baptized And when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. Those are the three accounts that we have of Jesus' baptism. Now, to be fair, there is a reference in John's gospel to the baptism from John the Baptist's perspective. It doesn't go into detail about the events. It's just, we'll reference it in a moment, but it's just John the Baptist saying, hey, I witnessed this. So we'll, we'll come to that text after a while. But right now I want to focus in on the events that we can unpack from these three synoptic gospels related to the baptism of Jesus. And one thing I like to do is I like to understand geography. I like to understand where we're at when we're talking about the events of Jesus' life. And we, we know these are happening over in, in the promised land. These are happening in, the, in Israel. But where, in relation to the Jordan River, are we talking about him being baptized? So I want to work from there first. Where was John baptizing? The reason I pose this question is, is you think, oh, that's going to be an easy one to answer. That's going to be an easy one to discern. You know why? Because the Gospels told us where. If you look at John chapter 1 and verse 28, you find out that these things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. Oh, boom, easy. John just wrote in his gospel where John the Baptist was baptizing people in Bethany across the Jordan. All right, so all we got to do is find Bethany across the Jordan. We're done, right? Well, there are some issues with that, and that's why I bring it up. So you've probably heard of Bethany before, right? Who lived in Bethany? Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. You, you'll hear Bethany mentioned several times. I've put up 
on the screen there, on the bottom part, you can see all the references to the town of Bethany, aside from the one in John chapter 1, verse 28. Those are all the references to Bethany. You can, there was uh, Simon had a house there that Jesus dined in on one occasion, and he had his feet anointed. So you, you have Mary and Martha living there. Bethany is where Jesus went to bring Lazarus back from the dead. There are some significant events in, Beth, in Bethany. But the town of Bethany, with, with which we are familiar and which we're kind of talking about, particularly in the context of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, is only two miles east of Jerusalem. I'll circle it there on that screen right there. You can see Jerusalem and Bethany on this screen. At the same time, you'll notice if I can get this laser point, the Dead Sea here. And the Jordan River is this little squiggly line that runs up between the purple and the orange areas. It's the river dumping into the Dead Sea. So, here we are looking at this town called Bethany. It's located two miles outside of Jerusalem. And in most references that you find of Bethany in the context of Scripture is in relation to its proximity to Jerusalem. Every time Jesus leaves Jerusalem, he seems to be going to Bethany. Every time he's entering Jerusalem, he seems to be coming from Bethany. It was like the suburb that he spent the most time in. And it's mentioned quite a bit in Scripture. And it's uh, John chapter 1 and verse 18 that tells us that Bethany's only two miles from Jerusalem. But it's not near the Jordan River, and it's definitely not across the Jordan River. And so, therefore, it is not the Bethany that John is talking about in the first chapter where John the Baptist was doing his baptizing ministry. You can see just from an, an aerial map that it's not close to the Jordan River. It's, it's about 20 miles away from the Jordan River. So then, is there another Bethany? Is this talking about a place that's on the banks of the river or something similar to that. Well, there have been two possible locations suggested with decent evidence. One of them is going to seem very familiar to you because it is where you expect it to be. So let's start with this. Option number one of where this Bethany across the Jordan is, is it could be a reference to a location on the western side of the Jordan River near the Dead Sea in a place known as beth Abra. Now, you can see the similarity between Beth-ani and beth Abra. Here's the thing. There is a 6th century mosaic that was discovered that is a beautiful piece of artwork that's been defaced during... Um, uh, the Muslim occupation of the land. But it has this map of southern Judea, including Jerusalem, including the Dead Sea and the Jordan River. And I've got it pictured, a portion of it zoomed in, pictured on the screen. Now here's what you need to know. This right here, this big half oval, is supposed to be the Dead Sea. Imagine a map going that's vertical laid on its side. And so this actually is going north, this is going south, this is east, this is west. That's the Jordan River there. This is the Dead Sea. And there's a little word right there that spells out Beth Arba. Beth Arbora. Now this is on the western banks of the Jordan River at the mouth of the Dead Sea. See, when we think about the baptism of Jesus in the Jordan River, that tends to be where most people imagine it being. And this 6th century mosaic, I, I, I can't, it was uh, the, I gotta find out the name of it again. Uh, it's called the, well, now let me get to it. Called the Madaba map, because it was found in a uh, church of St. George at Madaba in Jordan. It identifies this, Beth Abra, not only on the banks of the river and at the mouth of the Dead Sea, but it also identifies it as the historical location of John's baptizing efforts. And so we have this archaeological evidence that points to a location on the Jordan River at the mouth of the Dead Sea 
as the place where Jesus was, uh, at the place where John was baptizing. So that makes sense to us. Here is a, a geographical map, a current map of Israel and Jordan. This is what makes this very interesting. Because the Jordan River parts these two hostile territories, these two hostile nations. And what you have on the screen right now is this squiggly line through here. That's your Jordan River dumping down into the Dead Sea. And one thing you need to know about the Dead Sea is it's receded quite a bit. It used to reach more up into here. Uh, but that's, this is a current Google map of this region of the Jordan River at the mouth of, at the, where it dumps into the Dead Sea. I'm going to zoom in now. And you get a better idea of the Jordan River here. This nice squiggly line is the Jordan River of the area that I was showing you just a second ago. There are actually two places on the Jordan River that are traditional sites of Jesus' baptism. If you went on a tour of this area, these are the places that they're going to say, hey, Jesus was baptized right here. You can't always trust those traditional sites, but I'm providing them to you right now to show their comparison to this historically documented place called Beth Arbora. The first place that is associated with the baptism of Jesus is over here on the Jordanian side, and it's called, it's called Al-Magtas, if I pronounce it even close to correct. You can see it's not on the river as the river appears in the screen, but you have to remember, rivers change over time. Rivers are constantly moving. And so you think 2,000 years ago, that, that river probably did not uh, form the same path it takes today. But here's a picture of that site. There are these interestingly... Uh, almost pond-like features in that area where the Jordan River once passed through. And, of course, the uh, structure that you see there did not exist in the days of Jesus. There have been, of course, temples and churches and shrines put up in places like this all over the Promised Land to uh, honor the locations. But this term, al-maktas in Arabic, means baptism or immersion. And it's considered to be the original location of the baptism of Jesus by some, not by everyone. And that's worth pointing out. You see, that's on the eastern side of the Jordan River, in the nation of Jordan. Well, the nation of Israel has its site too. And its site sits currently on the banks of the river as the river currently exists. It's a site called Actually, I think I misspelled that. It should be Kasar El Yahid. It should be an S before the A, an S, one A and an S before the A. Kasar El Yahid. And it means Castle of the Jews. And it's not only believed to be the site of where Jesus was baptized, it's believed to be the site of where the Israelites crossed the Jordan River when they entered the Promised Land, and the site where Elijah was taken up into heaven. And this is what it looks like. In the forefront of the picture is the Israeli side. And they have this nice uh, structure there where you can walk down into the river and you can get baptized right there in the Jordan River. Same spot Jesus got baptized, right? And then, of course, across the river is the Jordanian side. Well, the Jordanian side is not going to let them have a, a site where tourists come without having their own version of it, you know. So you can go to both sides of the river at the same location where it's considered to be the spot where Jesus was baptized. And it's, and it's humorous to me because that means the country of Jordan has two sites that are indicated as the original spot of Jesus' baptism. I showed you one a minute ago, and then they have set up a place with this site that Israel refers to as the site of Jesus' baptism. Whether or not either site is correct, we will never know. And we don't really need to know. I like to show these pictures because they can give you an idea of what the area in which Jesus may have been baptized looked like. I mean, that's not the prettiest of rivers. That's not the uh, purest of waters. And it's not the 
deepest of, of locations either, though you can fully immerse in there in both these locations. It, it, it's not an area that you would necessarily imagine in comparison to the rivers we're familiar with. But if, in fact, this Beth Arbora place could be where Jesus was baptized, these pictures and this territory is what it's referring to. And that's a great possibility. But there is a, a kind of out-of-the-box possibility as well. And I say it's out-of-the-box because it's in a much different location. Option two for where this Bethany across the Jordan could be is actually in the north part of the territory, up above Galilee. One thing you need to remember about the Jordan River is that it starts north of the Sea of Galilee. The Jordan River starts up in the mountains. It descends and forms the Sea of Galilee, and then it continues on and forms the Dead Sea. And so what you're seeing here is, uh, excuse me, this body of water right here, that's the Sea of Galilee. The Jordan River runs south of it to the Dead Sea, but the Jordan River also runs north of it up into the mountains up here. And some scholars suggest that Bethany may actually be a reference to Batania, which is this territory up here on the northeast corner of the Sea of Galilee. The, the argument is that the term Batania in other spellings could have looked like Bethany. If you took the term Bethany and took that H off of it, take it from a theta to a tau, take it from a TH to a T, you can have very similar spelled words, very similar sounding terms. And evidence has been shown, particularly with Josephus, that the territory known as Batania had multiple names. There are at least three different spellings for Batania, actually, in Josephus' own works. Now, here's the thing. When we think of Bethany, we don't think of Galilee. We think of southern area, typically, the area of Judea. But here's what makes this appealing, at the very least, as a possibility. It would make travel between Galilee, where Jesus and his apostles were from, it would make travel from their home base of operations and where John was baptizing, it would have made that really convenient. Uh, open your Bibles to John chapter, th uh, let's see, John chapter 1, real quick. John chapter 1, uh, this is where Jesus appears on the scene and John the Baptist is going to uh, uh, direct his disciples to follow him. If you look at John chapter 1, and particularly look at verse 29, uh, well, verse 28, start in verse 28. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. Then verse 29, the next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And the next day, John sees Jesus. Now skip down to verse 35. The next day, another day, after that, the next day, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come, and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. There's some traveling happening here. They're staying wherever Jesus stayed. Jesus' uh, first apostles are going to come out of this crew that has been with John. Among them, we know Andrew is one. 
And we know that Andrew and Peter are from Galilee, just like Jesus. So, so there is this appeal to this location up by the Sea of Galilee because it would be so easy for Jesus and those original disciples to transfer between Galilee and Batania. This is also an appealing option because of who reigns over Batania. The, uh, the, the royal individual in charge of Batania, the jurisdiction under whom Batania falls, is a guy known as Philip. A guy known as Herod Philip. He was the first husband of Herodias. And if you remember John the Baptist's story, he was beheaded because of Herodias. You can read about that in Luke chapter 3, verse 19 and 20, and Mark chapter 6, verse 17 through 28. And so there's an appeal here as well, because if you look at the map I've now put on the screen, those are the territories that different descendants of Herod the Great oversaw, and Philip had the Batania region. And it would make sense for Philip to be the one at odds with John the Baptist if John the Baptist is working and operating in his region. Those are the ways in which Batania is appealing, but I haven't told you the ways in which that southern area was appealing. That southern area down by the Dead Sea is appealing because most of John's work is spoken of in conjunction with things happening in Jerusalem. For instance, you can look in John chapter 1 and verse 19, you see that the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? And in the very next verse, in verse uh, excuse me, then a few verses later, we find out he's in Bethany across the Jordan. It would make more sense for Jerusalem to be sending priests and Levites, occupations associated with the physical temple in Jerusalem. It would make a whole lot more sense to send them across the Jordan River by the Dead Sea than it would be up by the Sea of Galilee. You can also look at uh, John chapter 10 and verse 40, where we're told that Jesus went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained. And, and when you look at the context of the story, if you look at what preceded it in John chapter 10, preceded that verse, you see that Jesus was in Jerusalem, and it would make more sense if he's going to somewhere down in Judea than if he's returning to Galilee. And we're told in Matthew chapter 3 and verse 5 that Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to John the Baptist. The emphasis on Jerusalem there seems to indicate that this is somewhere close to Jerusalem. You see, both options have their merits and they have their weaknesses. So I don't know which one is the correct option. I'm just sharing it with you because it interests me. We don't know exactly where John the Baptist was working, doing his baptizing. We know it was in association with the Jordan River, and we know it was across the Jordan River, which tends to mean on the eastern side, because everything directionally in the New Testament is based on Jerusalem. And so it seems that it would have been on the eastern side of the Jordan River, but we don't know the precise location. I share those options with you just so you can think about it and investigate it yourself. With that being said, let's move forward to talking about John's baptism. John's baptism is interesting to me because as I was preparing this PowerPoint, I tried to find artwork that would show Jesus' baptism, and there's plenty of it out there, but I couldn't find images, I couldn't find artwork that depicted Jesus' baptism by immersion. All of, the, all of the artwork is them pouring something on his head. And I want to, this is information that you've probably heard before. This is information that you, you, you are not unfamiliar with, I'm certain. And I believe it's even been taught recently in one of Stan Nutt's auditorium classes. But I want to remind you that when we use this term and this reference to baptism, 
particularly we go to Mark chapter 1 and verse 4, John appeared baptizing in the wilderness. When that term baptizing appears, it's talking about immersion. So if you go look in a, a Greek-English lexicon at the word baptizing, you'll come across definitions like dip, immerse, or wash, to dip repeatedly, to immerse, to submerge, to cleanse by dipping or submerging, to wash, to make clean with water, to wash oneself, to bathe, to overwhelm. You see, when you talk about all of those terms, when you, when you look at all of those definitions that can be found in a Greek-English lexicon, what you discover is that, that baptism isn't just a pouring, it's an immersion, it's a submersion. In fact, I, found one, I came across one uh, piece of, uh, let's see here, uh, one commentator who's not a member of the Church of Christ. He wrote this, he said, The clearest example that shows the meaning of the Greek term for baptism is a text from the Greek poet and physician, and physician Nicander, who lived about 200 B.C., 200 years before Jesus. It is a recipe for making pickles. Yes, that's going to be our argument for baptism, a recipe for making pickles. And it's, it's helpful because it uses um, this word for baptism. Nicander says that in order to make a pickle, the vegetable should, be, should first be dipped, bapto, into boiling water and then baptized in the vinegar solution. Both verbs concern the immersing of the vegetable in a solution. So when we talk about baptizing, if you look up images of Jesus, if you watch movies of Jesus' life, you'll often see them doing the sprinkling or the pouring, but we're not talking about that. We're talking about immersing underwater, and I just feel like it's important to point that out before we move on. And with that in mind, I want to transition to talking about the comparison between John's baptism and what I'm going to refer to as Great Commission Baptism. When I say Great Commission baptism, hopefully you understand that I'm talking about the baptism that Jesus has called his disciples to lead people to. We're talking about New Testament baptism. So if you go over to Matthew chapter 28, we're instructed to go into all the world to preach the gospel, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. So there is this command, this order passed down from Jesus to his disciples for there to be uh, an, a, a, this evangelistic effort to lead people to him through baptism. That's what I'm calling Great Commission Baptism, the baptism you read about through the New Testament. And I want us to consider John's baptism because there is some uniqueness here. How is it similar to Great Commission Baptism? And this can feel a little uncomfortable to talk about to some degree. But I want you to notice that John's baptism is linked with repentance, just like the baptism that you and I submit to, the baptism that you and I teach, the baptism that you and I are instructed to lead people to in order to receive salvation. So you look at Mark chapter 1 and verse 4, John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And he went into all the region, Luke chapter 3 and verse 3, he went into all the region around the Jordan proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Here you see that John's baptism is linked with repentance just like New Testament baptism. You can go over to Acts chapter 2 and verse 38. Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Repentance is linked both with John's baptism and with the baptism preached on the day of Pentecost. And it's worth pointing out that John spoke a lot about repentance. If you read the narratives of John's ministry, he proclaimed, Matthew chapter 3 and verse 2, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance, Matthew chapter 3 and verse 8. He said, I baptize you with water for repentance, Matthew chapter 3 and verse 11. And you can also see that when people came to be baptized by him, they confessed their sins. That's part of repentance. We're told 
that they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins in Matthew chapter 3 and verse 6, as well as Mark chapter 1 and verse 5. So John's baptism is linked with repentance. And you may have noticed something else in those passages that we just read. That John's baptism is linked with forgiveness of sins. Now this one's hard for us. But look at the passages. I'm not just making this up. John's baptism is linked. I'm being very careful with my terminology, by the way. Linked with forgiveness of sins. Mark chapter 1 and verse 4, John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Luke chapter 3 and verse 3, and he went into all the region around the Jordan proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. I just want you to know I'm not making this up. I'm pulling it straight from Scripture that there is a linkage with John's baptism and forgiveness of sins. See, when we often ponder what makes John's baptism different than New Testament baptism or Great Commission baptism, we often appeal to the forgiveness of sins category. But let's not forget that even under Mosaic law, you could temporarily obtain forgiveness of sins. The, the, the sacrificial system did provide limited forgiveness, you could say. They had to make the sacrifices every year. It was repetitive. It was uh, habitual. That's why if you uh, were in Ben's Hebrews class last year, there's a whole section of Hebrews talking about how Jesus' sacrifice is better than that sacrificial system because it's, for one, permanent. So when we talk about John's baptism, we have to acknowledge that these similarities exist, that, that there is a reference in inspired Word of God to repentance and to forgiveness of sins, even with John's baptism, just as you see it in Acts chapter 2 and verse 38. But despite those things, there are some very clear differences as well between John's baptism and New Testament baptism. And so let's turn to that. And I'm not claiming to, come, to point out every similarity and every difference here, but I do think it's important to note that there are these differences, and we can see these differences because we get to the book of Acts, and there are a couple of stories that show us something is different about John's baptism. So if you go to Acts chapter 18, verses 24 through 26, we read about Apollos, and you might be familiar with this story. Now a Jew named Apollos... A native of Alexandria came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord and being fervent in spirit. He spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. Now notice that he's teaching accurately about Jesus, but he only knows the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him out aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. So obviously there was something lacking in Apollos' teaching. He was accurate about Jesus, but does that mean he was accurate about how to become a disciple? Does that mean he's accurate about the plan of salvation? We don't know exactly where his inaccuracy was, but he had to be educated because he only knew the baptism of John. A few verses later, you're going to hit Acts chapter 19. And maybe this sheds a little bit more light. Because it happened in verse 1 through 5 of Acts 19, and it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples. And he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, Into what then were you baptized? They said, Into John's baptism. It makes me wonder if they were taught by Apollos. Verse 4, And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe and the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Now, there could be other things to point out, but there are, there are two that stood out to me when I looked at these two stories and thought about the difference between John's baptism 
and Great Commission baptism. And the first thing that stands out to me is that John's baptism lacked a confession of faith that Jesus is God's son. Because Jesus hadn't come yet. Jesus hadn't died yet. Jesus hadn't risen from the grave yet. When you read Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10, what does that passage say about our confession? Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10 says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. In order to be saved, according to this text, you have to confess that Jesus is Lord. And Jesus hadn't come yet during the time of John's baptizing ministry. So I notice when I go back to the Acts 19 passage, at the very end, on hearing this, in verse 5 of Acts 19, on hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. To me, that's telling me that there is a confession that had been lacking that they had to acknowledge because they had only been baptized into John's baptism. But I think there's another factor. John's baptism lacked the reception of the Holy Spirit. In Acts chapter 2 and verse 38, it says, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The repent and be baptized part are similar to the teachings of John. But John never spoke about the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit didn't come until Acts chapter 2. And when we say in Acts chapter 2 and verse 38, when we talk about the receiving the gift of the Holy Spirit, we're not talking about the reception of those miraculous abilities you read about in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. That's not what this is referenced to. The only way you could get those abilities is if an apostle laid his hands on you and imparted those abilities on you. Then you received one of the miraculous gifts of the Holy Spirit. The gift of the Holy Spirit was that deposit that Ephesians 1 talks about, that guarantee of salvation. That's what the gift is. The Holy Spirit himself is the gift because he is that deposit of your salva- for your salvation that comes from God. And so that was lacking in John's baptism. People weren't receiving the gift of the Holy Spirit, the gift that is the Holy Spirit. And so, though more could be said on this topic, those are the two things that stand out to me as missing from John's baptism that are present in the baptism preached on the day of Pentecost and since. And you can, and in my opinion, that's what you can really pick out in Acts 18 and 19. Kurt, go easy on me. Increase, decrease. That's a great point. And I love that you brought up the leaping in the womb because that's about to come up. Uh, but I, I meant to read this verse earlier that kind of relates to what you're talking about, that the, the helping focus their view type thing. Luke 1, verse 17. It was prophesied of John in Luke chapter 1 and verse 17 that he will go before Jesus in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Now I want you to, this is complete conjecture. But John enters the scene teaching about this thing called baptism. The closest thing that the, the Jews had to baptism prior to John 
was a washing that they would require of a proselyte, somebody converting from the from being a somebody becoming a Jew as a Gentile, someone who's not ethnically a Jew, uh, but is uh, becoming one religiously, spiritually. This sort of baptism thing wasn't a, a, a salvation thing to them. For them, it was circumcision. Paul will, have, will make that comparison between circumcision and baptism in the book of Galatians, I believe it is. But for the Jews, there is some newness to this repent and be baptized mentality. And maybe John's getting them ready for what is going to be required of them to receive salvation when Pentecost arrives. Because their hearts are going to be hard towards that. They're still going to hold on to that, that circumcision mentality. Ian? Yeah. Yeah. That, adding members to the church, that's a great, a great additional um, difference between the two. Um, because that that is not because as Ian said the church did not exist at the time of John's baptism so therefore when they're adding to the number as they're being baptized that's another difference Emily yes I'm, I'm, I'm he's pointing to Jesus throughout his ministry I didn't mean to say he's not doing that. But the confession requirement is not mentioned in John's baptism. Holy Spirit baptism. Well, yes, and then of course there's Holy Spirit baptism recorded in Acts two, Acts ten, um, that that empowered some as well to speak in tongues among other things. Yes. Yeah. Yes, and that's what I was referring to, particularly with proselytes and then uh, washing for cleanliness. Yeah. great point. Yeah. Yeah. They always worried about power structure. <laughs> so that's a great point about them worried about the authority involved in that sort of thing. Great point there as well. Thank you for, for sharing. Um, so let's, so I wanted to show you these comparisons, the similarities and differences, because oftentimes people ask that question. If you ever, there's a great article on um, christiancourier.com about uh, what John's baptism, what the relationship between John's baptism and forgiveness of sins. He makes a, I think there's 10 points on the article. It's a, it's a great little read about the relationship between John's baptism and forgiveness if you want to uh, dive deeper into that subject matter. I want to transition with these last few minutes to this question. Did John know who Jesus was when he came to be baptized? And my guess is that all of you are like, yeah, because I was like, yeah, when I pondered this question. Because, you know, Kurt mentioned earlier, when Mary went to visit Elizabeth, they're both pregnant. And John, in Elizabeth's womb, leaps. He, there's a recognition of, uh, of a fetus. So to, it would be an easy assumption that John knew who Jesus was when he came to be baptized. I mean, think about it. They're relatives. They're relatives both, and both of them have miraculous conception stories. I, I can't imagine that their families didn't talk about that all the time. You know how you get together with family and the same stories get repeated constantly? That The funny stories or the the, 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 the big uh, event stories, they get repeated a lot. I'm certain how Elizabeth got pregnant and how Mary got pregnant got repeated within their family circle quite a bit. But here's what's interesting to me. Here's why I pose this question. There are two verses that 
stand out to me. This is John Baptist recounting the baptism from his perspective. John chapter 1, verse 32 through 34. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him. But he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, that is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. In this account, John says, I didn't know him, but the Lord told me that the one that the Spirit descends on, that will be him. Now you counter that with what's written in Matthew chapter 3, particularly verse 13 and 14. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? Here, John's statement seems to have a recognition that Jesus is the Son of God because he's, he's stating his humility and his, his surrender to Jesus' superiority. So which is it? Did he know him or did he not know him? All right, Kurt, elaborate. They may not have seen each other much during their childhoods, but... So, so there could be a part in which he can't recognize him because just physically they haven't seen each other in so long. No, that's just an opinion. That, uh, I, I, yeah. But that's a possible. I'm throwing out there's a possibility. The John one, the I did not know him as the Son of God. So I was. I know that's Jesus God, and I know He does good things. I know He is my relative, but I did not know who the Son of God was until I saw the things that I was told that I would see. So the, the opposite option, the other possibility, is he didn't know Jesus in terms of him being the Messiah. It's an interesting um, situation here. It's an interesting study. I like the way, um, oh, i got to get the name here. Um, Brother Sellers asked Crane in his Truth for Today commentary on this, how he responded to this dilemma. He said, although John thought Jesus was the Messiah, which explains his reluctance to baptize him, he did not know that for sure until the Spirit descended upon him. The dove served as empirical evidence that Jesus was the Christ. Here's the thing about John. He goes to prison in a few years. And even though he baptized Jesus, even though he had heard that in Jesus' ministry, Jesus was far exceeding him, and he even claimed, even said before his imprisonment, I must decrease so he, must, so he can increase. Even though John says these things, even though John, standing there with Andrew and another disciple, says, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. As Jesus walked by, he's in prison, and he sends messengers to find out if Jesus really is the Messiah. John struggled at times with the need for confirmation, it seems. And maybe the situation while he's in prison is driven by his circumstances. It may be here. What if it's a situation where, that's my relative, how can he be the Son of God? It just goes to show that everyone struggled with belief to some degree because there were expectations or there were um, just things that 
made you question. And so John here, it may be just another example of him. Maybe he, he, he knows, but he just needs confirmation. Maybe he just needs something to make him certain. And God told him in advance that when that, when that spirit descends on him like a dove, that will be your confirmation that this is the Son of God. Now, there's much more to be said about Jesus' baptism. In particular, the one question that everybody wants to know is, why was he baptized if he's sinless? We're going to talk about that next week. Uh, this, I have more material on this than I can cover in one Wednesday night, so we'll continue this next week. I also want to talk about the, uh, the phenomena that occur after the baptism, the, the three um, things, particularly the Spirit descending, the voice of God, all that. I want to talk about that uh, as well. So we'll spend some time on this next week. Before we wrap up, any other comments or questions or observations you want to throw out there before we, we call it? Ian. Absolutely. And that also gets interesting. Who all heard that? That'll be another thing we'll discuss a little bit next week is who all heard the voice of God speak in this moment. Uh, thank you for your uh, attention. Thank you for your participation. Thank you for not throwing stones. And uh, I look forward to studying with you more next week. So let's close out in a word of prayer. God, we are humbled by the life of your son. Uh, we're humbled by his humility, his willingness to fulfill all righteousness. And Lord, as we continue our study of his life, it is our prayer that we can emulate him better each day. Lord, thank you for his sacrifice. Thank you for his life. And thank you for his resurrection. And it's through his name that we pray. Amen.